0: I got a question for you. What does it take to get to Jesus? The televangelists will tell you all you gotta do is believe. And of course, that means you gotta add faith all on your own to what Jesus has done, not of grace. Roman Catholics will tell you to add faith to your works and you'll get Jesus. Robert Schuller will tell you, you just need to think positively. And that's the kind of people that Jesus gets next to. And the psychologist will tell you, you probably just need to get in touch with your inner child. Still, the question persists in view of all these answers. How do you get to Jesus? And we're going to tell you that Jesus says in John chapter 6 the only way to get to Him is by the Father sovereignly drawing you to Him. We're going to show you that from John 6 this morning in Jesus' words. Stay tuned with us on Sinners and Saints.
1: In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous 21st-century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints theology with an edge.
0: Thanks for joining us today on Sinners and Saints. As usual, joining us for our discussion is Reverend Adam Clution from Ontario United Reformed Church, and Reverend Moses Jambasian from Pasadena United Reformed Church. And I'm John Sautel, pastor at All Saints Reformed Church out in Diamond Bar, California. We're continuing on in our series here. We're taking a look at this book, Why I Am Not a Calvinist, written by Jerry Walls and Joseph Dongel. We've done several already episodes on this particular book. And we want you to know that if you want to go buy this book, you're free to do it. But we've been saying all along, there's no real reason to. There's no real reason to go out and spend 15.99 plus tax to buy this because it's really not worth the paper it's written on, frankly. But we're taking it seriously because both of these men are professors and distinguished
2: Armenian uh, institutions. Well, and we saw this in the bookstore, so we figure somebody's, somebody's buying it.
0: Actually, somebody's actually reading it. And we want to give um, an accurate representation of their arguments and then uh, refute them from the scriptures. Now... When it comes down to the issue of uh, the sovereignty of God and salvation, a number of texts we could go to, but one of them that they actually bring up here and say that the Calvinists have been misreading all these years, and the one that seems, one that seems so clear to teach that it's actually God who's 100% sovereignly in control of bringing people to Christ is John 6:44, 44, uh, when Jesus says in the midst of a discourse, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, a lot here to work with, but it seems uh, rather clear from the very language of the text that the way to get to Christ for salvation is not through self-help. It's not through pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's not even you meeting God halfway and Him meeting you. It's about God 100% bringing you, drawing you, literally dragging you to Christ that means all of the effort is on God's side while you uh, experience the, the the generous gracious
2: sovereign work of God in your life yeah let me see if I can set this up a little bit we go back to the context Calvinists have always done this in John chapter six verse 37 all that the Father gives me Jesus says will come to me so anyone we see here that the Father gives to Jesus will absolutely come to him and Jesus says, The one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So the Father will not give anyone to Jesus that Jesus will say no or push away. And sometimes you hear people argue back, Well, yeah, but you can walk away even if Jesus doesn't, doesn't give you away. But verse 39 says, This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. So not only will I not cast him out, but I will lose none of them, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then you come down to verse 44, which Pastor John just read, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we say, here you go. This is what we've been arguing all along. So so two important points
0: emerge from the context then. Number one, you don't get to Jesus apart from the Father drawing, and you don't leave Jesus because when the Father sovereignly calls and engrafts grafts into Christ, he preserves you there.
2: That's Calvinism.
1: And also you have to keep in mind that the word being used here in verse 44, that the Father draws you in, is the same word that is later used in John 21 when it's talking about the fish being dragged in. A full load of fish are dragged in with the net. There is no resistance on the part of the fish that is successful the fisherman gets what he wants once it's in the net and that's the same word and that's what the apostle john under the inspiration of the holy spirit has used
0: another passage where this same word is used is in james chapter 2 verse 6 where james is talking about how the rich have been oppressing the poor and dragging them into court now you could say it's like a summons or they are compelling them verbally no matter how you want to look at it whoever comes has to be there it's not that It's a volitional kind of thing on their part where they go, you know, that's actually a pretty good idea. Maybe I should go to Jesus today.
2: So the authors of this book, Why I'm Not a Calvinist, Walls and Dongle say, well, we've got to deal with this. Because this is one of the passages that just gives so apparently at least just obvious proof to what the Calvinists say. So let's give them
0: credit that they see it; they have to deal with it. They
2: rightly understand that this is a passage that we do believe is very important to our understanding of salvation. But they give an alternate interpretation. Now here comes the
0: magic trick.
2: Right. Here's where they say, okay, now first of all, this passage isn't really talking about God's general plan of salvation or the outworking of it in the lives of individuals per se. It's more about Christology. But really, their way of interpreting this passage in a different way than the historic Protestant church is by saying, you've got to understand that he's speaking to people that had never surrendered to God the Father in the first place. And so when Jesus comes to them and says, no one will come to me unless the Father sends them to me, drags them to me, he's really saying, well, you didn't belong to the Father in the first place, and that's why you won't belong to me. He's not talking about the general way in which God calls sinners to himself. Now, one of the ways they try to demonstrate this is by pointing out who Jesus is talking to, and they uh, give the immediate context here of the Jews complaining in John six forty one. Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven, etc. And therefore, automatically, we assume that Jesus is addressing only those who have been rejecting the Father all along, and now when Christ comes into the world, they're also rejecting him. So the passage they're saying is not so much about people coming to salvation in general, but it's about people coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the full revelation of the salvation which God the Father has been announcing uh, all along. Now, listen, the first thing that we have to attack here in their interpretation is that it's not only the unbelieving antagonistic Jews that are in view. Uh, It happened that in the course of Jesus beginning to teach this truth about salvation, sovereign grace, He was talking to people who were seekers. The context of this passage is after Jesus had fed uh, the 5,000 at the beginning of John chapter 6. And the people who were still following him and wanting to know more, this is uh, to whom he began his teaching in verse 35. The Jews weren't complaining against his teaching later until verse 41. And
0: just to verify that that's truth, and Pastor Adam's just not reading into the context... Uh, drop down to verse 60 if you have your Bible open. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And then later on in the passage, we're told that many withdrew. All of them except basically the twelve withdrew. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, the twelve, are you going to leave me too? You've heard what I've had to say, and, and you, am I crazy? You want to leave me too?
1: Also, well, if you want to talk about context, keep in mind that throughout the book of John, there is this question of who are the people who will respond to Jesus. Back in chapter 3, he says it is only those who are born from above are born again. And then by the time you get to chapter 10, he talks about being the shepherd whom the sheep will hear. And then he goes on, continuing, even up in chapter 17, where he gives the high priestly prayer. He prays for those who will, in fact, hear and respond. So, Throughout the whole book of John, there is this intermixing of various themes. So to say that, well, there is one theme and only that theme is legitimate for interpreting all passages is really a bad form of interpretation. Well, yeah, the fact that God's sovereign grace in election
2: is a regular part of John's teaching and a regular part of the teaching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, should clue you into the fact that when you hear things about that, you shouldn't be surprised and and try and explain them away by the fact that some are antagonistic toward what he's saying. I mean, you know, we would argue that the idea of God's salvation being sovereign in and of itself offends the Jewish people. I mean, this is what they part of what they took
1: offense at by the time you come to the end of John 6. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Well, dongle and walls don't accept it. So it's still an offense to people. So that's not Anything unusual.
0: Well, I think that's the point you got to come back to in this. By their constructing all these machinations, uh, by their evasion of the clear force of the text, do we place people like this who should know better, who've had the chance to carefully examine the passage, in our evaluation of them? Not so we sound critical here, but we have to make distinctions. We have to be discerning. Do we place them in the shoes of the people who walked away from Jesus at the end of this dialogue? Not just walls and dongel, but people who follow them, people who listen to them, who, who having heard the truth, still reject it and say, No, my salvation is not about God 100% drawing me sovereignly, bringing me to Christ.
1: It's about me, too. That's exactly what I think is going on here. This is the thing that Jesus has always said and all his apostles followed up with is that it is only those in whom the spirit has worked regeneration that there will be a willing heart. Because it is impossible for man with his pride and his fallen state to ever want to cede authority to God. And so that's why we create idols where we can sort of defer and pretend that we have respect for others. But really, it's the idols of our own hearts. It's idols that we can manipulate. And the prophets of old always spoke about the fact that the God of Scripture, the one true God, is the one that sees and hears and speaks, as opposed to the false idols of man, which, you know, externally might be given some characteristics that are similar to the true God because we still have, you know, we suppress the knowledge of God, but it's going to come out in some ways. So, yeah, that's what we're dealing with here. And I think that the words of Christ have to be taken at their full value. Yes, this passage has a lot of Christologically significant statements. It speaks very wisely, and it speaks also to our doctrine of the Lord's Supper. But that doesn't mean that excludes the doctrine of God's sovereignty and election. And to ignore that which is what they are trying to do say oh no you know don't pay attention to this well it's a false way of interpreting and thereby will yield a false result
0: Uh, one of the thing i want to bring up here in this passage too and this is not so much by way of direct criticism it's not even pertaining to criticizing the book that we're evaluating here is to to notice what salvation is about though sometimes we can miss this when we get really abstract in our talking and thinking about salvation when we speaking uh, sort of name faceless categories of election and so forth and sovereignty look who you come to jesus says you come to me no one can come to me and 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 i know that the language is is abused very often in evangelicalism having a personal relationship with jesus and all of this but i have to say on the other side because too often i'm seeing this kind of a mentality develop among some people who would uh think of themselves as as disciples of the Reformed faith is that faith for them is a purely intellectual activity where they master concepts and ideas and they're very good at distinguishing between Arminianism and Catholicism and Evangelicalism uh, over against the Reformed faith. But they miss the fact, though, that faith is focused on a person that's Christ. And if you do not have a faith, that has to do with the Christ who is a man— who is the God-man, you don't have faith yet that's saving, even though you can give all the right answers to catechism questions about election.
1: In fact, in our catechism, question 21, speaking of faith, it speaks of knowledge, assent, and trust. So yes, the knowledge is necessary and important, but it must be a true knowledge which yields an active trust in the one true God, and especially in his only begotten Son who came as our substitute. So... We're not disagreeing with these men as regards the fact that this is a Christologically very significant chapter. Our disagreement lies in the fact that they are rejecting another very significant portion. And so we'll ask you to honestly look at those verses again that we've taken, but read it in the full context. But for just a reminder, verse 37, all that the father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Selected verses, but by no means out of context. Read the full context in John 6, and you'll see there is no other way to understand this than that God absolutely loves individuals, chooses them by name, and draws them to Christ.
0: So we come back to our original question. How do you get to Jesus? And Jesus gives the very clear answer, is that the Father must sovereignly come after his own, whom he has chosen, whom he has appointed from eternity past, that would receive salvation in Jesus Christ— and He bestows the Spirit upon them. He works regeneration in their heart. He grants unto them faith and true repentance, and they embrace Christ unto salvation. That's how you get there—not through your works, uh, not through cleaning yourself up, uh, not through providing your own faith so that God can say, "Yeah, that's a good—that's the kind of person I like, somebody who's really going to respond in faith." But it's through God sovereignly bringing you to His Son jesus christ and that's at the heart of the message of christianity and the reformed faith thanks for joining us today on sinners and saints
1: join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of god's word on sinners and saints theology with an edge